Once again, our uh, partnership here between the Star Tribune and WCCO Radio. From the Star Tribune, Patricia Lopez and John Rash, Chad Hartman here from WCCO Radio. We call it Plain Politics. Good to see both of you guys. Pat, you spend plenty of time in St. Paul at the Capitol. When candidate Walls ran, it was, look what I did as a congressman, right? That I worked across party lines. And what did he tell us? One Minnesota. Mm -hmm. We are going to work together. So now we're a couple months into this. We're sitting here as we are uh, middle to late March. Are we seeing a change? Can we see a discernible difference, Tim Walls, compared to Mark Dayton? Or do we know yet? Well, I think, you know, he's very high energy. He certainly has advanced a number of ideas. Uh, Most of them have been declared dead on arrival by the Republican Senate. So there's that problem. And I think what you're seeing now is um, uh, a frustration that's building in this governor. Uh, He thought he had a certain kind of relationship with uh, the leadership over there and maybe coming to the realization that however uh, collegial their visits may have been, there's that. And then there's the political process where um, the other side is determined to, uh, you know, both block elements of his agenda that they disagree with and uh, and also to get, uh, you know, get some of their own points across. And so, you know, typically uh, the beginning of the session, you know, gets off to kind of a slow start. Slight wrinkle here. Uh, we've had uh, a forecast um, that doesn't look as good as the previous forecast. Right. Uh, everybody is coming to the realization that there really is no surplus. Um, and so now the governor is going to have to present a different budget, a supplemental budget that will probably scale back uh, some things. We're waiting for that. I think it's coming out on Friday. And then I think things will get a little more serious. We'll start entering the second half of the session. There's going to have to be a serious sort as to what makes it, what doesn't, yep. what kind of compromises. I, I do think that both sides want to be able to claim some successes mm-hmm. in this session. So hopefully they can build off that. But right now it's looking a little grim. Okay, let me stay with you. I'll get John in a second. So are we seeing any of those compromises or any of that modifying at this point? Because... It just seemed like the last couple of years, it was Mark Dayton here and it was Kurt Dowd there, mm-hmm. right? And then it was, it shouldn't even call the special session because we knew it was going to happen. And Gazelka said stuff, Wall said stuff. Are there definitive examples where Gazelka's moved to the middle or Walls has moved to the middle? Or are they both staying fairly firmly entrenched where philosophically they believe this is the best direction for the state? Hmm. I don't think we've seen a lot of either side moving to the middle yet. Um, That's going to have to happen if they want to claim some successes. Uh, What's interesting is that the Senate has pretty much just said no so far, no to a bonding bill, no to a gas tax, no to no even to the um, uh, election reform money that continues to sit in an account untouched for a year, making Minnesota the only state in the country that has not used its federal uh, funds to help reform its That's elections. It, it is. It is. And if you want to take that as a bad omen, you know, I kind of do. Yeah. The fact that they right. have not been able to get that one simple thing, which would have been such an easy win for both sides to claim Correct. victory, I, I think is a very bad sign. John, um, I know you're not tied to the polling, but I would assume the paper is going to roll some of that out soon, right? Whether it's just on the evaluation of, you know, Governor Walls and Senator Gazelka and also even on the gas tax, 
What effect do you think that might have on the two sides and how flexible and pliable they want to be with their positions? Well, I think regarding public polling and the way that the public is engaged in this process at this point, neither Governor Walls and in this case the Senate Majority Leader Gazelka have become polarizing figures, and the state is fixated on the dysfunction the way that they perhaps were, as you previously mentioned, when Governor Dayton and at that point the Speaker of the House, Kurt Doubt, really seemed at odds, not just politically, but personally at times as well. This collegial approach, I think, still exists. They both talked about getting easy wins, but as Patricia alluded to, it's a hard slog. They're not really able to get anything done. Yeah. Again, embodied by you know this very small bill, a very important issue about election security, and fundamentally something that Governor Walls ran on and he found, finds profoundly important, which is an increase in the gas tax. And, you know, that may vary in terms of how much it actually would be. But the idea that we're going to increase that and plow it back literally and figuratively into the roads and bridges of this state is not a philosophy that is shared by Republicans in the Senate. And I I do think it's going going to continue to be very, very difficult for both of them to come to accord. I think the only silver lining is that they're still on very good terms, it would appear. And it does not appear that either of these leaders are looking to especially have the first year of the administration go into a special session, go into an election year where there seems to be such dysfunction because there's great risk for both sides in that happening. I I think on the gas tax, it's worth pointing out that Republicans like to point out that Walls did not run on a 20-cent uh, increase to the yep. gasoline tax. So to the extent that the agenda might be affected by polling, if that particular issue were to poll really badly, would that cause him to scale back? I, I don't know. But that seems to be, you know, one uh, one issue at least where polling might shed a little more light as to where people are um, on, yep. on that kind of an increase. John, let's move to the uh, president. And uh, for some particular reason, when the president... Um, was tweeting out over the weekend, uh, continue to bring up John McCain. And I know some of the dossier information came up again. And let's just be honest, he distorts the role that John McCain played with the dossier. That's that's factual. He distorts the academics of John McCain. And by the way, John McCain was very self-deprecating about it. And we're talking about someone who, to most of us, is an American hero, who died months ago. And again, that relationship was so fractured that John McCain's family and John McCain did not invite the president. The president asked about it again yesterday. Didn't like John McCain, don't like John McCain, still blames him for the no vote, alludes to other things. I see today Mitt Romney has called him out. Johnny Isaacson has called him out. To me, it's a little... Embarrassing how quiet Lindsey Graham has been, considering that was his closest friend. Does this hurt the president at all, or, or do most of his base, that 40, 35 to 40 percent, do they say, yep, Mr. President, we agree with you about uh, John McCain. He was a rhino, whether he's with us or not. The hardcore component of the base has long been told by many of their thought leaders, be they on talk radio or on Fox News as an example, that Senator McCain was part of the problem, not part of the solution, despite the fact that the senator chose uh, Governor Palin as his running mate, which was looked at as a big breakthrough for 
right. that same constituency. And so, you know, you talk about the distortions. What this is the ultimate distortion of is political civility. We do not have a precedent of a president uh, who has routinely insulted a late senator, particularly one who people on both sides of the aisle and nearly every American who had been asked at one point considered an American hero. And just eight years prior to the election that elevated President Trump, you know, was the party's nominee yeah. and ran partly on his great sacrifice and service to this country. So this is really a profound moment in a series of them in, in terms of, you know, how he approaches the job in speaking to the American people. And you mentioned a few senators, sadly, not nearly enough from his own party, you know, who have spoken out. I noticed right before we came on air that Senate Majority Leader McConnell had tweeted out something in in defense without talking specifically about President Trump, but saying nice things about Senator McCain, and maybe they'll continue to roll yeah. this out. And finally, I concur with you and many others in terms of really how disappointing it is that Senator Graham has not leapt to his defense because Senator McCain was a mentor to Senator Graham. They worked together very, very closely. For decades. Some considered they were best friends in, right. in the Senate. And yeah, you wonder how real that friendship was. Yeah. Indeed. See, I guess I don't doubt their friendship. You know what I think so much of it is now? It's their own political survival. That they just feel like right now if they take on the president, that he's going to turn his wrath on him or that his vote is— and, yeah. and all of a sudden they'll get primaried. You know, the even, even on the national, even the national emergency vote. I mean, someone like Ben Sass, Mister Constitutionalist, mm -hmm. who's called out Trump and has said he called out Obama too on the Constitution. But now he's up for election in 2020, and guess what? Then he shut up and That's went right. along with the president. The president will not lose his base over this. No, nope. um, they have been well conditioned to take comments like this, no matter how outrageous, no matter how you know. Uh, um, you know, precedent setting it is, they kind of take him in stride and he has kept them focused on, you know, other things that he presumably is doing that or they like benefit what he's saying. them. Some of them like what he's saying. Um, as disgusting as but that is. I think what it what it really shows us is the degree to which he has dominated and fundamentally changed uh the Republican yes, Party. Exactly. It, it is his party, <clears throat> his principles, whatever they are, the ones that stand, uh few dare cross him. Um, it's it's astonishing that someone who was um, who had the stature of Senator McCain and who sacrificed his country is without question um, that that he can uh, tear down somebody like that and not see a response. I think only shows you the degree to which he now owns his party. So let's talk electoral college, Pat. I'll, I'll start with you. We now have uh, Warren, Kamala Harris, the the governor of. Uh, the, excuse me, the mayor of South Bend. We have so many Democrats just saying it's time to end the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. And then we have the president who at one point criticized it, said it was travesty. So now he says we need to keep it. Are we just seeing everybody want it? Right. But are we, <laughs> but it's the same thing with the Democrats. Are they mad because Hillary had the most votes and yes. Gore had the most votes? So it's just, it's not really philosophically what's best for the country. It's no. what's best for my party. That's right. Because, um, the electoral, the electoral college has devolved into something that, you know, there's no perfect system. So if you go with the electoral college, we've seen that um, smaller states are 
uh, have um, an outsized influence on the election and have managed to go against the popular vote a couple of times already and maybe position to do the same in the future. And, and meanwhile, you have the most populous states in the country whose influence has been diminished. If you get rid of the Electoral College, then, uh, you know, the other side is right. You will see that dominance shift to those larger states, yep. more populated areas. So this is really a war between two differing philosophies, two um, parties. The Republicans dominate with those smaller, less populated states, the Democrats with the larger. And so this is a proxy fight over who gets to win this. And, John, the idea that this is close to happening is is folly. I mean, the constitutional changes, the supermajority through the states, what would need to pass in the House and Senate. I get the feeling this is going to be debate for a little bit now. That maybe it comes up later in the general election, but it's it's really going nowhere, right? But you're starting to I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, say, go ahead. I, you're starting to see a fight over this idea of a constitutional convention. It's been brought up before. You need 34 states uh, in order to call one. Yeah. We I think now have 31 that are uh, all of one party. So it's. It still, to me, seems improbable, and the chaos that it would unleash is just mind-boggling. Um, but that is the strategy of some people who see this as a way to change some of those fundamental rules. Well, there's one other thing I saw, John, today I was not familiar with, that there are 12 states that have passed this now, where they, and, that, and it amounts to 181 electoral votes, where they would like to see it when it gets to 270 electoral votes, that their votes match how the entire country votes. So really that the state wouldn't matter. It's matching the state's electoral votes with the rest of the country. That's another unique and bizarre twist in this. Indeed, and there are several permeations, you know, that are being discussed out there. But the the most clear difference, difference would be if we went from electoral college to popular vote. And both of you are quite right that each party has a different side on this relative to their to their recent electoral history. What does happen with the current system, besides the difference in small and large states, as Patricia accurately pointed out, is that there are some states that are extraordinarily important to this country that are all but ignored in presidential elections, California being one of them and Texas being one of them, yep. where the Republicans barely, if at all, bother to campaign in California, our most populous state, our most economically impactful state, and the Democrats the same thing in Texas. That's not good for the citizens of those states or this country because both parties should really take into account the different dynamics there and to try to adhere to them if indeed they're elected president. Let me let me just try to squeeze in this Ted Koppel comment because Koppel obviously is a legend with Nightline and he's really stepped back. He was a part of a Marvin Kalb event who was a longtime journalist mm-hmm. and now is a kind of a an overseer of the media. And they had an event where Koppel was talking about the press and the president. Part of what Ted Koppel said is this. The perception that the establishment press is out to get him, referring to the president, doesn't mean that great journalism isn't being done because it is. But the notion that most of us, he's talking about the media, most of us look upon Donald Trump as being an absolute fiasco. He's not mistaken in that perception. And he's not mistaken when so many of the liberal media, for example, describe themselves as belonging to the resistance. When you hear Ted Koppel say that, you think what? Uh, I think he's right about the first part. Um, I disagree with the second part. 
I don't consider myself part of the resistance. I think there are a lot of reporters who uh, have been political reporters for a long time, seen a lot of administrations come and go. They know how Washington works and how it's supposed to work and when it doesn't work, and they're making their assessment based on that. I don't think that means they're dedicated to uh, the downfall of this president. What do you think, John? That I concur with Patricia from the perspective that most professional, objective journalists do not consider themselves not only not part of the resistance, but necessarily partisan and are clearly looking to do their job as well as possible. I think part of the challenge is that what has been conflated is journalism and punditry and the way that many Americans, and in some cases most Americans, depending on on where they're at in different stages of their life, get their news in terms of cable news, there's a complete blurring. And we see this on Fox Mm -hmm. News as an example, where there are some tremendous journalists who are often seen in the middle of the afternoon you know, on Fox News, but the evening is taken over completely by partisan pundits, and people think that that's journalism, and it clearly is not in its most traditional sense. And it's not slowing down, right? I mean, the popularity of the shows on the different networks at night. It's accelerating, if anything. The yeah. hunger uh, for this it seems to be inexhaustible. Yep. Great stuff. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Uh, Plain Politics, again, this uh, partnership between the Star Tribune and WCCO Radio, Chad Hartman here, along with Patricia Lopez and John Rash. You can consume this uh, multiple ways. Hopefully you heard it just live. You can listen to it with StarTribune.com. You can also check it out, WCCORadio.com. And we'll be back with uh, these two once again next Wednesday.